Good afternoon and welcome to Vintage Orange here on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Ellen Bell. Welcome and this week we are going to be traveling a bit outside of Orange County all the way up to Yosemite National Park and there we will be reliving an historic camping trip that changed the course of American history. My guest this week is Chris Epting. He's a local author and historian from Huntington Beach and he's here to discuss his latest book, Teddy Roosevelt in California, The Whistle Stop That Changed America. And it's all about the historic train trip that President Roosevelt took in 1903 out west to visit California for the first time. And what he saw on this trip amazed him and changed the course of his presidency. So 1903, let's take me back to that historic whistle-stop tour that you talk about in your book. Tell me about the details. What, what was going on? Why did he decide to, do, to make this trip? Well, as a lot of people may or may not know, Teddy Roosevelt wasn't elected. He became president when William McKinley was assassinated in Buffalo in 1901. And so then our 42-year-old vice president becomes president. And after a year and a half of being president, Roosevelt realized that a year later it was an election year. He'd never been out west. And he wanted to come out and kind of shore up votes and meet people and, and introduce his, uh, his agenda and whatnot. But he also, in the back of his head, had another agenda, which was to meet uh, John Muir. He'd become a fan in the number of years before that of John Muir's books and, uh, and articles and things of, of course, the great, you know, Sierra, Yosemite naturalist John Muir. And so uh, Roosevelt extended an invitation to meet him with the expressed request that, that Muir himself take Roosevelt through Yosemite for three days and three nights, no politics, no aides, no media, no nothing. Just these two men and then two other guys that were going to cook and tend to the horses. And so Muir accepts the request. He originally had plans to be in, out of the country, but a friend of his, a friend of his said to Muir, listen, how can you blow this opportunity? Here's a man who can really help you with your newfound mission of preservation. So Muir reconsiders this, accepts the invitation, and so game on. And then in April, April 1st, I believe 1903, Roosevelt and his seven-car train make their way out of Washington and begin working their way across the United States. He sees Yellowstone for the first time. Roosevelt sees the Grand Canyon for the first time. He's really taking in the West. But, of course, it's California where he's going to spend a full month traveling that he's really excited about, especially meeting John Muir. So that sets the stage for this incredible camping trip that's going to take place the first week of May 1903. And all along the way, um, as Roosevelt, you know, and I love how in any picture and many of them that you have in your book, that any time you have these wonderful images of him giving speeches, which is what he did as he was traveling along on the train, yeah. and, and he would stop and get on the back and give these wonderful um, speeches. And uh, most of the images, his hands are always blurry because he was so emphatic. He was, so, he was like perpetual motion kind of a guy. <laughs> he was, well, he was, and you got to understand, too, 1903, this this is before microphones, and so ah, he's getting up and yes. giving literally hundreds of speeches on this tour, and oftentimes in front of five, even 10,000 people, and so without any kind of amplification, you know, back then all politicians or good successful politicians had to be tremendous orators, they had to be bigger than life, they had to be able to project all the way back, and this was why when presidents and politicians would speak back then, people were naturally quiet, they really wanted to hear, and you know, even the boldest of voices couldn't reach that far so people would almost like a telephone game they would pass back in the crowd <laughs> what was being said but to your point about Roosevelt he was a very emphatic speaker he loved 
public speaking. He was very good at it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and they would do these whistle stops, which was essentially just when a train would pull up, Roosevelt's car in the back had a little porch where he could go out a little deck and speak to people. And they would do these impromptu, spontaneous uh, speeches across the country. And people were thrilled out of their mind to actually be seeing this bigger-than-life figure right up close. In many cases, Roosevelt would get off the train. He would meet and greet people. There were cowboys that just adored him that he would go out in the uh, desert with and, and cook barbecues with. He had all these little side trips. And, and he really used the opportunities as a chance to get close to the people, to listen to people, and to relate to people in a way that he simply couldn't do back in Washington. And he really was this man of the people um, kind of a character, you know, and you read about him, and he was he grew up in privilege and could have been sort of a distant, um, you know, academic, He you know, from his background, going to Harvard and all of this, but he really was not that way at all. He was very no. much um, a populist president. He was of the people and and all along the way I love the speeches that are in your book that he talks about um, the unity of the country and meeting people that are very different and how he is so proud to be a part of this diverse country that we live in it was really absolutely it's he's quite very refreshing. engaged he's very approachable I think the the best example of that in the book is on day four or five of the trip they're in Kansas and he comes out of uh, Roosevelt comes out of mass at a church uh, one Sunday, and there's a little girl, and she's presenting him with a newborn badger, of all things. And (laughs) Roosevelt's aides all freak out and start explaining to her why you can't do that. And Roosevelt shoos them away and takes the badger and says, you know, if a little girl is going to be that thoughtful to present the president with this gift, the least he can do is take it. And so that badger becomes a part of the tour. He names it Josiah on the spot. Uh, Josiah lives in, in Roosevelt's beautifully, you know, luxurious train car for two months. <laughs> and, you know, becomes this incredible character in this crazy road trip play and ultimately gets back to the White House where Roosevelt at this point has a menagerie of animals. And Josiah lives there for a couple of years before raising total hell and then being shipped off to the Bronx Zoo where he lives the rest of his life out as a, a sort of a semi-celebrity as a former <laughs> presidential pet. So this trip is rife with these crazy... I mean, Roosevelt's a very big kid in a lot of ways. He loves sneaking up to the car, the main engine in the middle of the night and pulling the engine whistle that he could hear screaming across the plains, you know, and just really delighted in having full run of a car. Because, again, he's very much like a little boy, and what little boy doesn't love a train, you know? And so I think that was sort of the beauty of Roosevelt then, was he wasn't a pompous bureaucrat. He was a flesh and blood, boisterous, enthusiastic, you know, at times petulant, um, you know, really uh, enthusiastic individual. Well, he, yes, and he was very present. Like, it seems like in every situation, he was very much of the moment he was in and with ever whom he was speaking to. And so I think he has this incredible curiosity that he took with him across on this trip that he was really seeing, like you said, things for the first time, great wonders of the world that he had certainly read about and studied. I mean, he was just a, you know, an inexhaustible student. He was always learning. But to finally see things like the Grand Canyon first, and he, he, he kind of kind of gets unabashedly blown away by it. He doesn't... Oh, he's very emotional, and he's a great writer, and he gives these incredible speeches, very in-the-moment, you know, very first-person, mm-hmm. immediate reaction speeches that, he's, that he writes. And 
just gushes about his country and you know what he's seeing for the first time he's a wonderful writer uses very powerful language it's same thing when he sees the pacific ocean for the first time near santa barbara i mean he just has to sit down and write you know then stop the train and he goes out and he speaks what moments ago were just words in his head so he's very uh extemporaneous and and really a man of the moment and i think people fed off of that because i mean the only people you pity for are his staff because he's so unpredictable <laughs> and that he just you can't keep up with them you know whether he's you know feeding the badger in his car or whatever or just wandering off without telling people he really is sort of feeling his way through this thing for the first time he doesn't like formality he doesn't like stuffy events he would much rather be out mixing up with the people enjoying a good meal and just having fun well I, this is a perfect transition to talk about really kind of the key point or the keystone of this whole trip that you mentioned was this camping trip that he envisioned having this time with John Muir who was who was a kin w- would you say they were kindred spirits they were a, I know they had a lot in common I think in a way mm-hmm. I mean in, in a way they are but in a way they're polar opposites mm-hmm. I mean for, as boisterous and um, animated as Roosevelt is Muir of course is very modest and quiet and much simpler mm-hmm. but I think their their shared love of nature is what really drives them together the one big difference is at this point in their lives Muir is sensing that there's a danger out there that there's encroachment that there's logging and all of these things that threaten nature Roosevelt wasn't quite there yet and I mm-hmm. think that's what really sets the table for the national the seeds of the national park system is because when these two finally meet and start talking about it um, Muir can convince Roosevelt that, look, you can't be complacent. You just can't sit back and think that everything's always going to be there. It is going to take powerful acts of Congress and presidential decree and all of these things to save things. And that's really where I think the mission, Muir's mission, comes into focus is when they meet uh, in early May and head off uh, into the woods. So there must, yeah, I think you're right. There had to have been a a real practical reason for him because Muir would never have wanted to attract any kind of uh, pomp and circumstance or all of the things that traveled with Roosevelt, that whole Oh, sideshow kind of thing, all those A's No, in and fact, publicity. the night they were supposed to meet, it was at a, at a big speech Roosevelt was giving in San Francisco, and Muir was out on the sidewalk. He heard all the noise and music and cheering, and he wouldn't go in. And his journalist friend said that the president's waiting for you, and he said, well, let him wait. It's not my environment. So Muir blew that off and actually went to the train and went to bed <laughs> and said, well, I'll just meet him in, in the morning when we pull into the town of Raymond, which was then the gateway to Yosemite. So, so again, both these were two guys stuck to their guns. I mean, they really weren't going to stand on ceremony, and they weren't going to kowtow to each other. I think to both their credit, that's what makes it work, is that they both are committed and they're not going to bend too much for each other. But what's really interesting to me is right before, the day before they meet, Roosevelt sees this first grove of redwoods. I mean, really, as you're approaching, you know, getting close to Yosemite and the thoughts of sequoias and redwoods, and he's in Santa Cruz, and he's taken by the, you know, the town governors and council people and all that. And there was this one tree in the grove that was there, and it was covered with uh, want, not want ads, but like uh, sales ads and job <laughs> ads and all that sort of thing. And people basically used it as a bullet, community bulletin board. Oh, my goodness. And it really kind of desecrated the tree. And it's the first tree Roosevelt sees getting off the train. And he goes hits the roof. And if I can read briefly, he gives this really sort of admonishment, what was going to be this glorious speech, 
um, he begins talking, he says, quote, to pin those cards up there is as much out of place as if you tacked up so many tin cans. I mean that literally. You should save the people whose names are there from the reprobation of every individual by taking down the cards at the earliest possible moment. And do keep these trees, keep all the wonderful scenery of this wonderful state unmarred by the vandalism or the folly of man. And I mean, it really, and everybody was speechless, and then he stormed off into the grove. And as he's out there, people take everything off the tree so that when he comes back out, he sees the tree and it's been restored to its, its original grandeur. And I actually went and found that very tree today. There are still nail holes in that really? tree of, of, uh, of where people had posted their things. And so, you know, that was Roosevelt, I think, using his power and his bluster and his passion to, to fix things on the spot. And I think that was sort of the power of him, too. He did cut a very intimidating figure if uh, you didn't know who was coming, you know, well, and... And I think that's part of what Muir appreciated in Roosevelt, too, is he sort of had the power and the force of, you know, he was a force of nature in his own way. And I think when they met, Muir realized that and thought, wow, this is the kind of guy I want fighting for me back in Washington. And so uh, Roosevelt now, as you said, getting back to a little bit of his uh, kind of his petulant child, uh, you're not going to control me attitude. He decides that, yes, he has all of these handlers and aides and, and I think cavalry, weren't there? He was had all these yeah. oh, yeah. people along with him, Secret Service. He, you know, he is the president. And, it's another and the president t- was just assassinated two years before. Exactly. So there's tension in, in a trip like this where anybody can approach him. And so what he does, and I'll let you tell the story, is he decides he wants to go into Yosemite, but he doesn't want to just stay in the hotel there with everyone else. He literally Really wants to go off the grid, and he wants to he get wants a where no one. Trip, and, and, and a camping trip he gets. Yes. Yeah, so tell me about that. Well, literally, I mean, oh, the only creature comfort he requested, he didn't even want a tent. And it, this was May; it was still snowing up there. He wanted forty blankets, forty <laughs> um, well-strung flannel blankets. That was going to be his bedding. That was his only real royal request. And he and Muir, with that and their two guides, head off into the woods. They chase away the staff begging to go along. He orders them back down into the valley to the, near the Wawana Hotel, and that's it. And so he and Muir at that point spend their very first night in the Mariposa Grove of Trees, very famous grove, with their two guides who sort of stay on the periphery and eavesdrop a little bit, but basically tend to the food and the horses. And what they report later, those two men, is that the first night, Roosevelt and Muir, are, they're kind of circling each other. They're sort of getting to know each other and working out whatever little um, speed bumps might be there, you know, and Muir certainly had an attitude toward Roosevelt. He didn't like the fact that he was a trophy hunter. Muir believed that you hunt for food, but not for sport. Mm-hmm. And, and that bothered him, and that was something, that was a hurdle he had to get over in his initial discussions with Roosevelt. In fact, and so they have this very sort of, you know, interesting, slightly tense first night. But the next day they ride their horses up to Glacier Point, where it is going to snow that night, about eight inches, <laughs> thus freaking out the 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 aides down at the Wawana Hotel, but Roosevelt loves it, and it's that, that second night at Glacier Point where Muir actually, over a fire, gets in Roosevelt's face a little bit about the hunting, and Roosevelt um, acquiesces a bit and says, you know what, I'm going to work on that, I'm, which is a huge step for anybody to, to, to get in Roosevelt's face about that after only knowing him, you know, not more than 24 hours. It was a really bold move, but Roosevelt respects him so much mm-hmm. after just a day that he says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some heed with that. And, and true to form, if you look at Roosevelt's life after that, there is not that much trophy hunting that goes on. Some tie that back to the speech that Muir made to him over the fire. But more than that, that second night, um, Muir begins explaining what 
what's happening up there, what the threats are, what needs to be done, and why, how they can do what they call forest good. And so uh, they have this glorious second night up there. They're photographed together uh, the next morning up on Glacier Point. Then they ride back down to the valley for one more camping night at Bridal Veil Fall which is where they continue their discussion and, and really now have bonded as brothers out in nature, just just enthralling each other and really having a good time. And again, to this end, Roosevelt blows off every presidential event that's been planned, <laughs> every celebration down there, every dinner. He just says, no, I'm not doing it. And he, and he leaves everyone in a cloud of dust on horseback. And, and he and Muir have this one last night together, which really does kind of seal the deal. And there's a sign at Yosemite as you leave the park that marks the exact spot where that last camping trip was. And it talks about how the, those two minds over a campfire that night really came to grips with what they had to do together to help protect and preserve things. And that's really where you get this idea of an, organiza- an organized sense of park system. Like, you know, this is a centennial. So in 1916, Stephen Mather becomes the very first head of the National Park uh, service, but uh, but the seeds for it are planted, I think, on those three nights because that's when these two men figure out that it isn't just enough to love nature. You've got to have a plan in place, and you've got to begin thinking in terms of organizing things and making things consistent and really having a system in place uh, so people can enjoy these places for a long time. And so Roosevelt leaves this trip uh, with definitely a, a change. There's been a transformation in him. And so this this trip to California, this westward trip, has really... Um, he, he always was a conservationist. He was always definitely a uh, uh, interested in nature and the value and the grandeur of nature. Absolutely. But, but now but he has, like you said, he's got more of a plan. He has a mission. No, he yes. has a mission. And after that meeting, I mean, the numbers are what they are. He, after that meeting, he authorizes the creation of 150 national forests, 18 national monuments, five national parks, four national game preserves, 51 federal bird reservations. I mean, he goes crazy. He can't sign enough things. And he and Muir maintain their correspondence over the years and continue working together. So he absolutely was inspired by Muir in this trip to go back with a more formal way of thinking. Uh, and, and again, not taking anything for granted, for never keeping your eye off the ball and understanding that you've got to work to make these things happen. And in this case, you know, a government really could help with those things. And so... You know, definitely a transformative time in, in our history and a very pivotal point in, in certainly the history of conservation in this country and the national mm-hmm. parks, which we're celebrating this year. So uh, other than the fact that it's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful story and part of American history, but what really got you the fire under you to write this book? Well, I mean, it's a number of things. I, I, like you, completely admire and love learning about uh, Theodore Roosevelt. But the same thing goes for John Muir. You know, Mm -hmm. I think those two guys in their own way, even as different as they were, they did share this love of nature. And so for me, I've always heard little bits and pieces about this story, but it's never been told on any grand scale. And and that's what I think motivated me. As somebody who writes about lesser-known history, I'm always looking for stories that, if they've never been covered, even if they have been, maybe they haven't been unpacked to their fullest. And there's very little about this camping trip that's ever been documented or recorded. So I figured, why not do the first real top-to-bottom look at the entire trip with a heavy focus on California and John Muir and Yosemite, but really put together the speeches and the letters and the photographs and make it almost more of a track I mean, this is the very first time that even all of the cities visited have been recorded in order. I mean, I went back and tried to dig up exactly what every single day was comprised of, because that couldn't happen. I tried to track down where Roosevelt's car, his train 
car ended up and learned sadly that it had been uh, in Stockton, California in the 50s. It was an employee lounge hmm. for the railroad workers before being destroyed in 1955. So I tried to trace down every element of this trip, but really kind of just get to the heart and soul of this. I like road trips, too, and this to me is like <laughs> the ultimate road trip. The thought of a president being gone from the White House for nine weeks um, in an age before cars, essentially before cars, at least mass-produced, um, before telephones are, are, well, you know, used much, before microphones, all these things. In this really primitive age, he not only pulled it off, but he returned to Washington the day he was scheduled to. I mean, you couldn't do this today in terms of logistics and planning. They left the day they were set to, and they returned June 4th, which was their originally scheduled return date. And this is a, a, a trip that was trains, it was stagecoaches, it was horseback. It was, you know, so many different kinds of travel, yet they pulled it off with no great problem. I mean, really, nobody was hurt, nobody was lost. Everything kind of worked out, and I think it's an amazing, just logistically, it's an incredible feat that they pulled off in 1903. And it's really the last time any president ever did a trip like this, because soon after 1903, the world becomes getting very modern very quickly. And you don't have the, it doesn't necessitate a trip like this. So this is to me the last of the age. It's the last of a great presidential train trip uh, headed coast to coast, meeting thousands of people, changing lives, planting trees, doing all of these things with this, this really kind of mission in the back of his head to go commune in nature with one of his, his heroes, John Muir. It is really a wonderful, I say story, it reads like a story, even though it is all factual and happened, but it's a fabulous read because it's exactly like you said, you feel like you're traveling with him and you've done an excellent job of, of setting the stage of each of the days. I felt like I was going along right along with and it was wonderful. Oh, well, um, but I do think it, it, it is remarkable to it, it, it makes you kind of harken back for a time when people could be just a little, when, when things slowed down just a little bit. And obviously this was in an age when you weren't living with 24-hour media. You weren't nope. uh, having to have people have answers and information instantly. And there was time for him to stop and look at the ocean and digest and read and write and and have these long campfire talks uninterrupted. And yeah. it, I mean, the idea of the President of the United United States, you know, just being out in the wilderness, and people really didn't know exactly where he was. And like you said in the book, there think there were accounts like, "Well, we haven't heard from the president in a day," you know. And he's yeah, no radio silence. He's and literally on, on his own. Yeah, and, and loving it <laughs> and accomplishing great things and having the chance to actually think and and go over and have a discussion of merit with the people who were involved and it's just such a wonderful part of our history to be able to say oh couldn't we couldn't we do that again you know oh i agree there was a press car one of the seven cars was full of newspaper people and they would be granted i mean roosevelt if nothing else was equitable he would grant interviews to whoever would tend most favorably to the badger in his car i mean <laughs> he'd say look whoever wants to feed it and sit up with it will i'll grant you the interview and that of course people did it so it was kind of funny the games that would that would happen but the press loved him on this trip um, they had one. He, in fact, he joined the press for dinner on the very last end of the trip, and they had a, a rousing time together. Roosevelt was very. <laughs> 
self-effacing, had a real sense of humor about himself, and knew how difficult he could be, and was really beloved. I mean, what I love most about this trip, I think, it's really bipartisan. There's no bad politics involved. It was celebrated by Americans, left, right, center, whatever. This was something that was special, and it wasn't because he was a Republican or not a Democrat. It was because he was a, a committed, passionate American Absolutely. who was dedicated to learning about his country. Yeah, he the the popularity that he enjoyed during his presidency was really kind of unprecedented, and yeah. and and he didn't abuse that. He just kind of used it to 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 create more unity, which was really a wonderful thing about him. And he he loved diversity. He loved to meet as many different types yeah. of people as he could, and he sought that out, and and then would bring everybody together in the fold and say, Yeah, but the great thing is that we are all Americans, and I am so proud and to be count you among, you know, we are all Americans and uh, really a wonderful uh, uh, hero, in my opinion, for doing that. And so as you go along, as you're doing this research, did anything surprise you? I know you were a fan of his before you started the book. Did you well, learn anything one, new? Yeah, well, a few things. That the, the one thing that really blew me away was discovery I made right at the end of the book where he, uh, as he's leaving Yosemite, he goes to the, a place called the Wawana Hotel, which is still there for lunch. And after lunch with John Muir and some visiting locals, he said, you know what, I want to walk across the path and visit an artist named Thomas Hill. Thomas Hill was an artist in residence at Yosemite, and he lived at the Wawana Hotel and painted in a little studio there, which today is the National Park Visitor Center. It's his studio. And so Roosevelt charges across the, the driveway there, and he surprises Thomas Hill, who paints these beautiful oil paintings paintings of Yosemite. They're very famous paintings. And they're talking and, and such, and Hill asks him what he thinks of Yosemite. And Roosevelt just raves about how that last night at Bridal Veil was really, you know, in the meadow there, was really a special night. So Hill gives him a painting he had done of Bridal Veil, which is, I looked it up in the White House archive, it's a beautiful painting of this, you can see a little figure in the foreground, which kind of gives the, uh, as a reference point to the depth and grandeur of the, of the valley. And Roosevelt, you know, is collecting gifts this whole trip, like the badger, like the painting. So by all accounts, the painting goes back with him on the train to Washington. And I found the painting in the archive. And it's, again, it's a beautiful painting. But what got me was I found a letter that Roosevelt wrote Hill a few months later thanking him for sending the painting back to him, which was, which was an anomaly. That's not how the story goes. So I dug a little bit deeper and discovered that before giving Roosevelt the painting, Hill suggested that he paint Roosevelt into the scene. So I went back and looked at the painting, and it's actually Teddy Roosevelt, that little figure was added after the fact as an homage to Roosevelt's visit. And so in my head, which was kind of crazy, is that now became a presidential portrait, you know, went from being just a beautiful oil to literally a presidential portrait, which nobody had ever known before. Oh, that's fabulous. So that was a cool discovery, and um, and actually since that, as we speak today, um, as luck would have had it, a friend of mine who I was also writing a book with had just performed at the White House for the president, and uh, his name is John Oates from Holland Oates, mm -hmm. and he's a big history fan himself, and I told him this story, and he said, well, this is amazing, we've got to do something. So he contacted the uh, Michelle Obama's chief of staff, who I guess is a history fan herself, and gave her all of my research. So now as we speak, they're trying to get that painting um, out of storage and placed into the Roosevelt Room in the White House, which is the old conference. It's a conference room today. It used to be Teddy's office. And so hopefully by the time they leave office, that painting will be extricated from the bowels of some storage facility and placed in its proper spot in the Roosevelt Room. So that was probably the nicest unexpected thing that came out of doing the book. What an incredible thing. I mean, to be able to uh, 
um, to tell that story and to to share that bit of information that had been kind of uncovered and lost and forgotten. And and what did I think that's a perfect presidential portrait of him. And he would probably say, even though he's like what an inch tall, not even in the picture. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like an inside joke because he doesn't even mention it in the letter back to Hill. It's a reporter that overheard Hill say that to him. So it almost seems like a little thing that was just between them. So like a little inside thing. Yeah. But it's so appropriate to see him in in the... And there's a copy of the picture in your book. And to be able to see him in the middle of the valley like that, that's, I think, where Roosevelt would exactly like to be remembered. I totally agree. And I think that's why the painting should hang in the Roosevelt (laughs) room. But but again, a little discovery like that. um, I know you like history a lot. When you find something like that that most people have never heard of, before, that's the best feather you can stick in your hat because you brought something new to the party. You, you came away with some bit of information that people may never have known. And that's always a nice thing to be able to pass down as something uh, newly discovered. Those are the nuggets in the treasure hunt. Absolutely. 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 Well, so we're, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I had asked you, you know, there was a speech and you mentioned the one that, um, that President Roosevelt did in Santa Cruz and we, right before he was about to embark on this uh, Yosemite journey. And I've asked you to read a portion of it because I think it really kind of encompasses what he was about and it gives you a sense of him that I really enjoyed. So would you read that for us? Well, this was the end of that speech when he was at, uh, you know, in the cradle up there amongst all the redwoods. It's a couple of lines, but they're so beautiful. He says, um, can we get it with here? Remember that we have to contend with not merely knavery, but with folly, and see to it that by your actions you can create the kind of public opinion which will put a stop to any destruction of or any marring of the wonderful and beautiful gifts that you have received from nature, that you ought to hand on a precious heritage to your children and your children's children. I am oh so glad to be here, to be in this majestic and beautiful grove, to see the wonderful redwoods, and I thank you for being for giving me the chance, and I do hope that it will be your object to preserve them as, na- as nature made them and left them for the future. I mean, that right there, that whole idea of preservation, of, of not tearing things down, of, of supporting things, I think that's the, the essence. Of well, your, your book really gives us, it makes, he, he comes alive in this book. Chris Epting, thank you. Teddy Roosevelt in California, the whistle stop tour that changed America. I highly agree. And I, I encourage people to read this book because you do have his speeches, you have articles, other things that have been written about this trip. It's a wonderful compilation that really sets the stage and takes you along on this tour and gives you the the sense of the man. You really get an essence of what he believed in and how valuable he was to our our country at that time and, and still is today, fortunately. Absolutely. <laughs> thank well, you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's good talking to All you. All right. We, I always reserve the right to call again. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> you got it.